This is Joe and Mike Royer. And you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Everyone's all in on the whole Ruby dream. And experience is really something you get after you already needed it. Here it is. You are tuned into the first episode of season four of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. It sure is good to be back firing up the old microphone in the Avalanche Hour studios. I hope you all had a great summer. First day of fall was last week and the leaves are changing color. There's a hint of wood smoke in the crisp evening air and the dirt is ever perfect under two wheels right now. I'm pretty stoked to be back bringing forward the fourth season of the Avalanche Hour. Woo woo! Of course, I couldn't do it without the support of the people that make this show possible. Big thanks to TAS Gazex, a company of MND Group. For more than 20 years, TAS has been engineering, installing, and maintaining remote avalanche control systems for highways, communities, infrastructures, and ski areas. If your project or company is looking for natural hazard control solutions, look no further than TAS. Ten Barrel Brewing out of Bend has been providing me with support and refreshment for the last few seasons. A company that started with a few friends brewing beer has turned into a company that still makes great beer, but also has a passion for progressing ski and snowboard culture through funding athletes, movie projects, and financial support of organizations such as Protect Our Winters. Not to mention making this podcast possible. Check out their latest release of Profuse Juice. It's a juicy and hazy IPA that's sure to satisfy. Drink beer outside. It's getting to be that time of year again when I load up and hit the road for the podcast interview tour. Our little dog and I will be heading to the Tetons and then up to Bozeman, Montana. I'll be in Jackson from October 21st through the 28th, and I'll have a table for the podcast at the Wyoming Snow and Avalanche Workshop on Saturday, October 26th. Swing by and say hi, grab a newly designed can koozie, some stickers, maybe even support the show by buying a volet strap or a hat. Come on, you know you need some more volet straps. I never have enough. After Jackson, I'll be in Bozeman until November 7th. I've got a great lineup of guests to be interviewed in both locations. But if, you, if you're in these locations and like to be on the show, please reach out to me at the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com and we'll make sure to make it happen. Maybe you've had a close call that you learned from, or maybe you've had some formal or informal research that you want to share with the community. Either of those would be great reasons to reach out to us, and and we'll schedule an interview and and work that into the schedule. I'll be posting a list of guests that will be on the show, both on the website and my social media outlets. If you have questions you'd like me to work into these interviews, reach out and, and I'll make that happen as well. If you're like me, you probably are expecting to open your mailbox any day now and see the first issue of this season's Avalanche Review. It'll be soon now. But while you're waiting, head over to the A3 website and make sure your membership is up to date or become a member if you aren't already. Membership sure does have its rewards. And right now, if you become a member, you will be entered to win a sweet ski pack from Deuter. You can also be entered to win by referring someone else. 
person that you persuade can put your name as the referring member in the bio section of their application. Hell, I imagine you can put my name in there now. While you're at their website, make sure to check out some of the latest pro employment listings and don't forget to find the date and location of your nearest snow and avalanche workshop this fall. A3 has a big part in making sure these valuable continuing education opportunities exist. And for that, we thank A3. I am pretty excited to roll out this next interview for y'all. I first heard about the Ruby Mountains while patrolling in the Wasatch. When it became time to pack the bags and follow my lovely wife to Oregon, I reached out to Joe Royer of Ruby Mountain Heliski. I cold called him actually, and to my surprise, he answered the phone. I visited Lamoille, Nevada a couple times before the snow flew, and for some reason, Joe gave me a shot at guiding for his outfit. As I look upon my seventh year at Ruby Mountain Heli, I think about how many amazing experiences I've shared with guests of this family-run operation. I also think about how much I've learned from fellow guides, pilots, mentors, the snowpack, and the range itself. I feel lucky to have a place there, and I think you'll understand why after listening to this interview. Tune in as Joe and Mike Royer sit down with me at the end of last season and chat about the evolution of a legacy. Spool it up. Here we go. All right, Joe and Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time. Oh, it's a pleasure being here, Caleb. Yeah, we've, uh, we're just wrapping up kind of the, the end of a, a heli ski season, at least for me. I'm, I'm taking off tomorrow and it's been a been a hell of a season here in the ruby mountains hasn't it yeah i mean it's been uh, one of those epic years and sounds to me like you're gonna fish finish it up going to chamonix yeah headed to chamonix in a, in a few days here so pretty excited for that um joe and mike why don't you just introduce yourselves tell us a little bit about what ruby mountain heli is and what it means to you where it came from how you founded this this uh, amazing company. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, this is Joe, and my background has always been in skiing, and I've been skiing my entire life. I'm 69 years old, and I've probably been skiing 67 of those years. Grew up in California, skiing at Badger Pass and China Peak and the, in the Sierra, um, all over um, Old Mount Rose, you know, I was really fortunate to have parents that encouraged us skiing, you know, and they took us skiing when there weren't buckle boots and they were always so stoked when the buckle boots came out. And I can remember the first pair of head standards that came out. And before that, my dad would have wood skis and he'd put uh, fast ski on the bottom of it, which was like this mud that you put on a base, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. So that went on and went until I was in high school. That continued on into high school, and I got into surfing. I was living in Marin County at the time um, with my parents, and I got into surfing, and I went to Alaska, and I lived in Haines in 1968 um, and really looked around thinking about going skiing there, but nothing like they're doing there now. And uh, I went to Mexico and started surfing down there, or I had been surfing down there, and I had been down there in a place called San Blas, and I lived there for about a year. And I woke up one day and uh, figured, wow, I got to go skiing again. And I left the next morning on a train, and I went back to Marin, and I hitchhiked back to Alta, Utah, and that was uh, in 1971. And uh, I was a fry cook at the gold miner's daughter. And, you know, it was uh, old school. I think the lift tickets there were like four bucks a day. And we skied on two tens. You know, they were probably, I don't know, 6,500 foot or, you know, super narrow long skis. But uh, it was a, a hell of an experience, you know. And, and to be able to be at Alta in the late 60s was a story in itself. You know, I mean, it was like totally magic. And, you know, it was the education from going skiing with your parents to actually becoming a, a ski bum, so to speak, you know. And in, in those days, there weren't ski athletes, you know, nobody was an athlete. We just went skiing and, you know, we did the, we went and skied all these wild new routes all over Little Cottonwood Canyon. But, you know, there was really uh, 
we were just considered ski bums, and it was a, a great time in uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon. Um, I got in on the ground floor at Snowbird in 1971-72, and it was another wild experience. Nobody really knew what was going on. A guy by the name of Hans Burkhart had built the tramway. I worked for Ted Johnson, and uh, it was before Dick Bass got there. And it was, again, it was skiing as much powder as you could every day, um, being on a ski patrol, dealing with explosives, dealing with uh, avalanche guns. And, you know, it was uh, a true learning experience. And even to this day, all of our friends that were there in the early 70s, still we look back on it and we all cherish those moments. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it was, it was unbelievable every day. But it was a learning curve, you know. I mean, we did a lot of things that uh, c people could have gotten hurt by doing. You know, nobody really knew anything about throwing hand charges at the time, and nobody knew anything about these recoilless rifles or the pack howitzers that we used. And, you know, uh, there were a couple of guys there, a guy by the name of Kent Hoopengarner and Warren Balsifen and Bink Sandall, and they were... They were all, uh, you know, they put together this program at Snowbird and built a foundation that really Ruby is based on now. You know, so that's that was kind of the, at the at the time, you know, being at Snowbird was just this magic time. And you think about all these, all the lodges that got built and how it all all shook out there, and and to be able to survive it and still be in the ski industry, you know, I've been really lucky. So. Between being in Little Cottonwood Canyon and uh, my folks living in the Marin County, we would commute back and forth across the Great Basin. And, you know, you had Wells and Wendover and Battle Mountain. And it was always a huge experience to be able to drive across the desert. And you were always happy to make it to the next town, you know. I mean, old Volkswagens and heat and you know, it would get super hot and super cold. So we would drive back and forth across the desert. We'd look out into this range of mountains out here, and it, were, it was always a place that you would look because they were the biggest mountains that you had seen going across the 500 miles of, the, of desert. And so you'd look, and nobody knew anything about it. You know, you knew about the Wasatch, and you knew about the Sierra, but nobody knew anything else about anything between those two points. So... We kept looking out here and over the course of years, and I think it was 1977, and there was a, a guy by the name of Carl Fisher and then Bing Sandal from the Little Cottonwood Canyon um, got together, and the three of us put together Ruby Mountain Hellish Ski Guides. And Carl put the bill for it, and we started to learn a little bit more of the range. I did a huge amount of walking in the, in the time, and you know, you'd walk out, in the, you'd leave in the dark, and you'd get home in the dark and you were on skins and you might make it to the bottom of one of the runs. So there were long approaches and it was really a culture shock to move out of Little Cottonwood Canyon where you had all these friends and a huge social life to Lamoille, Nevada where you had like no social life. Or, you know, so the first couple of days, you know, that we came out here, that I came out here and I came out on my own and uh, I got to the point where I could come out for a couple of days and it was okay. And I was always Jones and get back to Little Cottonwood Canyon where all my friends were. And then the next time I'd come out, I'd stay for like maybe a week and I could hardly wait to get home back to Little Cottonwood Canyon. And then the next time, maybe three weeks and then a month. And pretty soon I got to the point where I didn't want to go back. You know, I, I'd gotten to a point where it was really a, a cool spot to live out here and be able to do what we thought might happen. There was a lot of hiking around. No money involved. You know, zero money. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, no money for gas. And I can remember going and fishing for, for weeks on end and just eating bread with mustard and trout. You know, and you're just, you know, that's, that's what you lived on. And then I'd be skiing and there were a lot of... Uh, snowmobilers around, but nobody had a really good history. There had been a little bit of work done in research and some skiing, and there had been a ski area in the 50s that people had put together, but it, they lost their permitting in there, and it was an old rope tow at the head end of Lamoille Canyon, and uh, 
there's some stuff on the online you can take a look and, and look at that you know so the first trip that we did was in 1977 it was Carl Fisher and I and uh, we had 10 guys out of Little Cottonwood Canyon that came skiing we skied for a couple of days and you know they all thought I was living the dream and, and they didn't know anything about the mustard and bread <laughs> sandwiches but but they you know it was it, it we we went up skiing in the dome you know that was the first place we skied it was March 17th of uh, whatever the year that was and so it was like St. Patty's Day you know and, and we just celebrated our 42nd year here so we've been incredibly lucky Caleb but I think it was Thomas Jefferson that ended up saying hey the harder I work, the luckier I get. And this is a lifetime of work that we have here, you know. And so it's been something that uh, we both, Mike and Francie and I, all have a huge passion for. Uh, something we love doing and, uh, you know, we hope to continue on. We're passing the torch to Mike and it's pretty cool to be able to have a second generation guide. Really, a lot of people have called us the first family of helicopter skiing in the U.S., um, it's uh, it's a great honor to have that label, and you know it's something that uh, we all work really hard. Yeah, it's it's very evident that that's the case, and it's it's totally cool being amongst a family that owns this company that cares so much about the place, and and I think first and foremost, they're the guests that come through here are so well taken care of, and um, it's so evident from everybody that works here and everybody that passes through these doors that you guys just care so much about this place um, and the, the people who are here. Um, I, I think that that's what really what, what sets Ruby apart from a lot of other places is that, you know, it's a, a family-run operation and we're, we're all kind of one big family, everyone that works here. And, you know, everyone's here every day and the guests see that, they see you know, the guides coming down from the mountain and shoveling snow and taking out the trash and clearing dishes and uh, they see all the attention to detail that, that the kitchen staff puts forward that's, that's run by Francie um, and that the, the housekeepers, the effort that they put in. So everyone is, is really just, uh, everyone's all in on the whole Ruby dream and, you know, that's, I really think that that's what sets us apart and what makes this place so special is the, the the folks that we have here working every day and that that keep the, the dream going and it's kind of like what mike said oh here's francie hi francie francie, francie where come oh, on francie's in. here yeah. welcome francie hey, welcome so, to the podcast yeah, welcome to the podcast. avalanche hour avalanche hour I'm, I'm not sure i'm ready for this conversation say hi to everybody hi everybody Who's, who am I saying hi to? Mike now you're saying Jay. hi to the we, world, podcast we, world. We, oh. Maybe we need another round. <laughs> yeah. So we had a guy come in here earlier in the season, and what he said, hey, you guys, there's something that I notice here, and it's that everybody that is here is all in. And so we've used that term that, you know, all the guides are all in, all the housekeeper, it doesn't matter. You know, everybody helps out the each person, and the guests pick up on that, and they they get it. They they and they say that you know they haven't had experiences like what we're doing, nor do you actually see that happen in a lot of the in a lot of the other guide services, whether it be helicopter skiing or bike bicycling or whatever. It doesn't matter, you know. So we feel really lucky to have the crew that we that we have, and to have the friendships and you know, the people that believe in us and we believe in them and there's nothing that they wouldn't do for us or we wouldn't do for, you know, our, our guests and our, 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 our friends, you know. Yeah, well said. Um, Mike, maybe you could talk a little bit about the, the physicalities of the Ruby Mountain Range and some of the kind of weather patterns that favor the range <clears throat> and then talk a little bit about the, the snowpack that we deal with here. The, the Ruby Mountains are located pretty much right between the Sierra and the Wasatch Range. So on Interstate 80, we're about 20 miles south of Elko, Nevada, which is generally right between Salt Lake and Reno. Uh, the range is, is 
It's a good size range. It's about 90 miles long and 10 to 12 miles wide. There's 10 peaks higher than 11,000 feet of elevation. Um, you know, we, we ski in, in 200,000 skiable acres in the, the Ruby Mountains, offering everything from wide open bowl skiing to, to limber pine, white bark pine skiing, uh, tight aspen skiing. You know, so there's, there's a, a lot of various terrain for, for various abilities. Nevada is the, the most mountainous state in, in the United States and, the, the weather patterns that favor the Ruby Mountains are what's called Northwest Flow. So it comes out of the Pacific Northwest and the best snow storms that we get pretty much go right by the, the north end of the Sierra Nevada Mountains and really kind of skips over the Sierra and hits us and then also hits the Wasatch. So that's, that's the, the best flow for us is Northwest flow and, and also for, for the Wasatch where they get, you know, those 30 plus inch storms in 24 hours that just gets the lake effect from Northwest flow. Um, you know, and that's, that's the, the best kind of storms. We get a lot of the, the big storms that impact the Sierra, the, the westerly flow systems that come out of the Pacific and just get, jammed up on the Sierra Nevada mountains, a lot of times they, that moisture can't even make it over the Sierra. So we, we really get the, the scraps of that north or the scraps of that westerly flow. Um, so sometimes, you know, the, the weather services will, will, uh, forecast a, a big giant, you know, storm coming, but we, we look at the models and we can see that it's coming out of the, coming straight out of the west and you know we're, we're skeptical of those of those uh forecasts you know they, they call <clears throat> the last few years they've been called you know pineapple express or atmospheric river storms that that uh, really impact the sierra nevada and you know we <clears throat> we get some moisture out of them but it's not nearly what what the sierra gets so our <clears throat> like i said our our best weather patterns come out of the, the Pacific Northwest and it's a you know a cold northwest flow system and that's that's our best weather. And then uh, maybe talk a bit about uh, the, the snowpack that we usually deal with here, the, the general trends within the snowpack. So the rubies are we're located in a desert here. So we have a, a very, very dry climate. And, uh, you know, it's not necessarily drier snow than you get in the Wasatch or in Colorado, but, but it is a, a much drier climate, whereas we're in, uh, you know, very high desert and we get super cold nights and uh, generally pretty, pretty cold days as well. Uh, so when you hear about the, the Sierra cement snow that the Sierra get, uh, we we don't really get that, you know. We have a, a very different snowpack than than the Sierra. We have a much drier, we have a much thinner snowpack than the Sierra has, um, and that really you know translates to to uh, Ruby ESP is what we call it, which is uh, excellent shallow powder skiing, which is what what Ruby is is kind of known for is. Uh, you have that the high desert geographic location and that dries out the snow with the diurnal faceting that goes on in the snowpack with the, the super cold nights being in the high desert air sucks the moisture out of the snow uh, and that, that leads to recrystallization in, in the upper snowpack which is uh, you know what what we ski a lot of the time here in the rubies. Which can also lead to some interesting um, avalanche problems when it's when it's, when we put a load on it, right? Yeah, I mean just to to echo Mike a little bit, it something that there are very very few places that have a snowpack like the Great Basin. Not just there, the Rubies. I mean, you can go anywhere in the Great Basin and get this. We don't have the amount of of moisture that comes through some of the areas in Salt Lake. And our relative humidity is much drier than it is in a lot of the other places, which really allows us, like Mike said, the diurnal fastening, the early season fastening. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it's part of what makes the skiing so good in the Great Basin. Well, let's just talk about some of the our our most <clears throat> common avalanche problems here. 
and well, and how we deal with that like how do we deal with working in a fasted snowpack this is a very unique place to ski guide and take people safely skiing with throughout the ruby mountains the snowpack in the great basin differs from a lot of other areas once again because it's so dry so what happens is and and for those of you that are out taking these avalanche courses and you're in a maritime environment this is much different this is a fascinating snowpack it's constantly changing with temperatures but what happens in the rubies and the great basin is you'll get an early season storm and that early season storm really goes into a basal faceting foundation which really isn't a foundation but there's a lot of basal facets so what happens is you have the the early season snow that's su subject to all the elements outside and that early seeds of snow that might be 30 centimeters it might be 40 maybe 50 centimeters but it might stay there for a 20-day period or 30-day period and just be subject to whatever outside air temperatures ambient air temperatures are going on at that time and it could be anywhere all over the board it could be cold in the fall it could be warm it's it's everything so that generally forms a bridge and then what happens is you start to get your winter storms and as the winter storms come in that bridge is subject to failing depending on how strong it is and how much weight we have a pretty common thing that we talk about is it's not how weak it is but it's how strong it is and so when i first started coming out here a lot of my friends that were familiar with fastening in the Wasatch said, hey, Joe, this will never work. Well, 42 years later, we have figured out a way to work in the facets. We've figured out a way to work in the shallow snowpack. And Caleb, it's something we work on every day. I mean, you've been working here for five or six years, and you know what it's like. I mean, every time you go out there, you know, it's, you're subject to learning something that you didn't know yesterday. And so that's the beauty of the snowpack. I would say in the last, and this year has been so extraordinary because we had an avalanche cycle that, that went down to the basal facets there for, you know, a couple of weeks. And then, you know, we had started getting a lot of moisture. We started, started getting more and more weight on it. And, you know, those, those basal facets and those, that bridging pretty much healed so that we didn't have the colossal avalanche problem that we have at other times. Right. It was a little bit of an atypical year, would you say? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Last year, uh, 2018, was was an interesting year also. And uh, it kind of goes back to, to what we were just speaking about. We had that, we had the early season snow that came in that, that created that the basal facet weak layer and then we had a, a layer come in on, on January 6th that we, we tracked for the entire season of Ruby. And what happened was we had that January 6th layer come in and then really went into a high pressure from the middle of January through the middle of February. And it really created this, this really strong um, you know, melt-freeze layer that we, we called the, the January 6th layer. And we tracked it for the entire year, and in middle of the middle of February, it started snowing, and it, it snowed, and it snowed, and the winter really kicked on in the middle of February. And I, I remember, you know, sitting in in the guide room, and um, it was really the the first experience that I I had with with this this type of event. And I remember several times that that Joe would just be in the guide room, and he'd just be. You know, he'd have a, a little smirk on his face and, uh, you know, all of us would be like, what, what's going on, Joe? And he'd just, he'd say, you guys just wait because it's, it's going to happen. And uh, you guys will know when it happened. I think exactly that type of thing, Mike, probably happens about once or twice every 10 years. You know, yeah. It doesn't happen that often. Yeah. So what happened, and a lot of the, the guys that are, are currently here working at Ruby, they, we'd never seen anything like it. And... You know, it, it had that January 6th layer and then it had the February snow on it. And we had a, a huge storm here in the early part of March where it snowed, you know, two or three feet at the lodge level at 7,000 feet. And that 
crust couldn't support that weight of all that snow anymore and the mountains really started to to come apart in the, the early part of March and there were you know hundreds of natural cycles hundreds of of natural avalanches and um, some really big results with our avalanche mitigation program that we use and uh, yeah it was you know pretty humbling and, and interesting to see all the the different avalanches that we saw in places that you know I and a lot of the people here had had never seen before it was it was pretty eye-opening for all of us yeah that was, certainly was a, a very impressive cycle and and um, I think we have the great fortune of being able to do some testing some slope testing with explosives here which you know I, th I think it's important to distinguish this from what might go on in a ski area where they're trying to knock down um, any hazard we I think it's safe to say and, and I, maybe you guys will agree or disagree but um, we use explosives just to test our forecast um, care to speak on that Joe Caleb I think you're right there's different seasons where you have different amounts of snow come in and if you throw explosives on one of your ski runs and it comes out to the ground you've lost that ski run for the year so most of a most of our testing is done on similar aspects, and we try not to take the ground out. And that doesn't always happen. I mean, some of the times you end up putting a shot in a, in a place that it takes the whole slope out to the ground, but you, you would prefer not to do that. Um, let's talk a little bit about, because there is no avalanche center in the Ruby Mountains. You know, we have... We use kind of our nearest neighbors to see what's going on around us, but our nearest neighbors are hundreds of miles away um, in, in totally different climates, you might say. So what does the forecasting program look like here? How do we, how do we figure out what's going on and, and then safely forecast for the avalanche danger? The forecasting that we do in the Ruby Mountains is, is really done as a group there's not one guy that goes out there and makes the forecast <clears throat> there's not one snow safety director it's all done in-house by everybody every day and the beauty about it is that we're all out there every day so that when we come in at the end of the day and we have our post meeting post operation meeting in the evening you know we can talk about the events that we forecast it earlier. So the next day in the morning, we make our forecast. And the forecast is done by all the guides. And we sit in a room and we go through the weather and we agree on what that forecast is going to be. So th that is a real gift. We don't have the ability to go to the Wasatch. We don't have the ability. However, we monitor what they're doing and we monitor the sawtooths. And we monitor all the areas around us that are similar snowpacks. The Uintas is a little bit similar to what we're doing. So if all of a sudden that we don't have anything going on here and we see everybody else around us that is at considerable or high, you know, we might take a look at that and go, well, why are we at moderate? And so we'll, we'll adjust accordingly. The other thing, the other beauty about what we're doing is we don't post an avalanche forecast. And the reason we don't post an avalanche forecast is because we really don't want the liability that's associated with it. And when you have these government agencies that have these forecast centers, they can incorporate the liability because they're such big entities. But Ruby is a private entity, just can't do it. Right. So, I, also, I also think, uh, <laughs> just going back to the location of the Rubies, um, you know, we're we're really located in a, a pretty remote area and we don't, the rubies don't see anywhere near the traffic that other of the large Western ranges see like, like the Sierra or the Tetons or, or the Wasatch. And there's just not the population to support the, the backcountry travel that is in all those other places. So that, and uh, you know, we, we've spoke about this, but, but we don't have a forecasting center. So, we do we do all of our own forecasting on a, a daily basis. We, you know, one of the things that we do at Ruby is we we require all the guides to have a, a level three or a, a pro level course qualification, um, 
just so you know everyone can speak the same language and is is on the same page and we trust people to people's knowledge about going out in terrain um you know and, and we're constantly looking in the snow starting from you know very very early season we have the the data when uh you know the first storm came in and what the temperatures were and what uh when the you know, if there was a, a, a rain event that came in and we track these these layers in the snow, we track them for the entire season. Um, so I think that that's one of the things that that makes it interesting is is that we're kind of one one team and we we put the forecast out to ourselves. And, you know, we we make a forecast in the morning, like Joe is saying, and we go out in the terrain that day and we come back and we. We do our, our tests during the day and we test the snowpack. And then from there, you know, we, we learn something every day. And, uh, you know, I think that's what we use going forward and to, um, to gain knowledge and to gain, um, you know, confidence in, in what we're seeing and what we're thinking to move forward each, each day here in the Rubies. So I, I think what Mike's saying is, is really right on the money and it's a, very tightly knit group of people. So when we go out and we do an extended column test, that I know exactly how hard, or I know exactly how Caleb's gonna do it. I know exactly how Mike's gonna do it. And so it's not like having a group of people that might hit the shovel harder at times or doing something a little bit different. This is all done exactly the same way. So when a guy comes back and comes back with an extended column text, comes out X, Hey, we know that that's a good point. If he come, if he comes back and he has a compression test that's coming out uh, easily and a sudden planer, well, there's no discussion about it. That sudden planer that he's talking about, we know exactly what he's talking about, and that's not always the case with bigger forecast centers. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> especially with observations coming in from the public, right? Um, that, that, that is important and they're very important observations, but you can't really vet the quality of some of those observations sometimes. Another thing I think is pretty unique here is, is that we will put a rating and a trend and a confidence level on most of our different drainages that we ski regularly. So um, I think there's different characteristics throughout the range depending on where we're skiing. And there might be a little bit of a different snowpack in Talbot Canyon than there is in the high alpine. So we don't necessarily rate our elevation bands, but we rate our drainages differently. Um, Joe, do you care to talk a little bit about that and, and why we do that here? And, and has, has that just evolved over the years from a certain event or experience or, or, or just kind of your, your knowledge base of that? Yeah, um, you know, the, again, the snowpack throughout the Great Basin varies so much, and it varies so much just within the 100 miles or, you know, the 250,000 acres of skiable terrain. And that's an interesting number there, too. You know, a lot of people say, well, how much ski terrain? In the old days, we used to say, well, we have 500 square miles. Now you talk about skiable acres. So it's 250,000 skiable acres of terrain so that encompasses a huge venue to go helicopter skiing in and it might be just in the our home terrain you might see four or different micro environments that are 100 percent different sometimes you have an area that gets more wind some places have less wind some places have no wind some places have more snow some places have less snow and over the years, we have figured out that when you're going helicopter skiing, that you really don't necessarily have to go to the places that have the most snow. You know, a lot of times it might be easier for us to go to the places that we know it's going to get less snow. So if we get a meter of snow in a snowfall, in the, which is a, a huge storm in the Great Basin, you get a meter of snow with a couple of inches of water in it. You know, we might just say, hey, look, you know, we're going to go to some of our home turf where we know that there's less snow in that particular area and conditions will be safer. Mm -hmm. 
than going into areas that might have picked up a new storm slab or something along those lines. Joe, what's your most memorable avalanche cycle in the Ruby Mountains over over the years? And then what what kind of led up to that those cycles? I mean, we Mike spoke about <coughs> last year's very impressive March cycle. Um, any others come to mind to you? Yeah, there have been a couple of them. I think that that uh, warrant you know thoughts and like mike says you know i mean you can kind of see this thing coming when you have you know 60 centimeters of you know three four five mil basal facets and so you know you know it's coming i would say that there was a a big cycle in 1986 that um was really a significant avalanche and it was one of the things that that there's a common number for us in the great basin where and, and that is you're dealing with these all these basal facets and you get a snowpack so let's say you have 30 40 50 centimeters of, of faceted snow um, you have a bridge over the top and you get another 30 40 50 centimeters of snow and then all of a sudden you get a big dump and it's going to double your snowpack and that's that's a real warning there, man. If you're going to double your snowpack in the Great Basin, you're going to have some significant, some type of significant event. In 1986, there was enough of a storm that going on where there were repeat avalanches during the storm. So it was a big storm, and you know it went through and and totally wiped out what we thought would wipe out all the aspen trees, you know, and as it turns out, they all grew back the next year. But, you know, I think that that was, that was one of the big cycles. I think the avalanche cycle that we saw last year, Mike, was uh, another significant one. Any of these that, you know, when, when you're going up these ridges and you look out, you know, and, and we do a lot of work, we do a lot of work without the helicopter. You know, we do a lot of work with our snowcats and, and we can monitor a lot of the drainages. And when you're going up in the snowcat and you look out for the first time and you have this clearing that goes on and you see a crown that has totally taken out all the ski tracks, you know, on three or four different ski runs, that is a significant event. And so that's one of the things that happened last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's talk a little bit about how we manage guests through a, a fairly dangerous snowpack, you know, and we, and we do it safely. Like, what are some what are some ways that we manage people and the terrain? I mean, we, you've talked about having this kind of operational working database after being here for 42 years and seeing these avalanches run. I mean, we, we kind of know where it's safe to ski given the conditions, right? Yeah, the uh, so over the over the forty two years, you know, we we have established landing zones and established pickup zones that that were really put in by by my dad Joe, uh, you know, starting forty two years ago, and um, are generally you know in in the safest places that that you can find. Um, also on on the ski runs, uh, you know, like like we talked about in the Great Basin, you really sort of skiing strips of snow in the Great Basin. And, uh, you know, that's that's where the, the skiing is the safest. And, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about, at Ruby, we talk a lot about online skiing. And I think it a lot of that goes back to, you know, the, the guide staff and the, the staff that we have working here and the, the trust that we all have with each other is that we know you know where the person's going to go and we know the protocols that we we all want to follow on the mountain and um you know and we're when we're uh maxed out and we have four groups on the mountain each guide has has four people and you know we we follow our our guiding procedures and our our protocols and we clear the slope before the next group starts and you know you stop in a place that's not in a run out and you make sure that you're stopped if you regroup on a island of safety and you know we we try and and manage the the hazard every day that way and uh you know try and keep safety as our our number one priority in the on the mountain 
another thing that's great about working here is we don't really stray from those protocols, no matter what the hazard is, right? Like we've been having, we've been gaining a lot of confidence in our forecast lately, um, towards the end of this season. And, and, you know, we recently bumped it down to low. Well, just cause it's low danger rating with a high confidence, we're not doing anything any differently. We might be stepping it out into some, some terrain that, that we would otherwise steer clear of given a higher hazard, but we guide it exactly the same. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's a, it's about the, it's about the procedures and dealing with group dynamics. And so our procedures don't vary, like you say, Caleb and Mike both. I mean, you guys, you guys have it pretty much dialed. You know, what I mean, you don't, you don't just because the danger rating is listed at low doesn't mean your procedures go to low. Your your procedures always stay at the top, and that's really important. And that is over the over my career. That's really what's been prevalent in having an incident that takes place and being able to survive that freak slide that happens. And in a fast-end snowpack, man, they happen. And so you might as well just do it. We ski four to one. And and Ruby was the first people to go to four to one. You know, everybody else was running eight to eight and two. And Ruby went four to one because we felt it was actually safer. Every group is backed up by another group. And we feel pretty confident about how that works. Helicopter skiing is dangerous, and there's no two ways about it. And you try to mitigate that danger with procedures and staff, with procedures and guides and experience. And experience is really something you get after you already needed it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, and every day is an experience here. Right. Jody, care to share a story or two about being surprised or, or, an, or, or an avalanche that's happened here when you've been surprised by the snowpack? Yeah. Um, yeah, there was, we had an incident, and this was a while back, um, but we had an incident, and it was an incident where we had an east wind, and that east wind doesn't really happen very often here, and, and we kind of didn't talk about it in our guide meeting, and it was, I think it was... You know, it was maybe in the late 80s, I would say. Anyway, so we went and we were landing and, and uh, had a pickup where we picked the guests up. And it was, we picked up on a avalanche debris. Rock hard, avalanche debris was, you know, 10 or 15 feet thick. And so we were moving our guests out. So what we would do is we would fly these skiers to the staging area and the guides would stay put and they would load up and then you had a guy at the staging area who unloaded and you basically got all the guests out of the field first. And that was just the way we were doing it at that time. So we're on this we're on this deposition and we have the deposition cut in. We're using a jet ranger and there were three guides that were loading skiers at this site. And the jet ranger had just picked up and was airborne for maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds, and they were down the canyon by that time. And this east wind had loaded the slope above us, and it had gotten warm, and the slope released and came out. Not real big, but, you know, it went through, it went through these, this uh, choke, and then it went airborne, and it buried... All three of the guides, um, and two of them were full barrier. So what was happening was when they saw this slide coming down, what they did was they 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 ran, and as soon as they ran off of the deposition, it was fine when they were on the deposition. They could run, 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 and then they got off the deposition. Then they went waist deep, and then the avalanche came down and buried them. And this Elvis slide path. Yeah, so. It's called the Elvis slide path now because when this all this snow came down and it hit the choke and went totally airborne, 
one of the guides said that I saw Elvis in the, in the dust cloud. And so it's always been referred to as Elvis from that time. But full burials, you know, he lost all the gear. Um, you know, not 100%, but I know Eddie. Um, Eddie was buried up to his neck and Kevin and, and uh, they dug themselves out. And we got the call that, you know, and we were all in shock. Holy cow, you know, these guys all just got buried. So we flew up and... And uh, by, by the time we got back in there, which was a couple of minutes, you know, they were on, pretty, for the most part, they were on their way out of being dug out. But uh, that was, that was a pretty exciting. Yeah, I think I've heard you say multiple times, never trust an east wind. Yeah, well, it was just something that was foreign to us, Caleb. Caleb, you, you got to always be aware of any of the changes that are foreign to you. So if you're getting a southwest flow prior to prefrontal passage that's normal you know you get the northwest to come in you know that's normal but when you start seeing stuff in your particular place that's not normal that's when you really have to be thinking about what's going on yeah all of a sudden we have you get a lot of heat any sudden change heat cold spring winter i mean any changes that happen, you have to be really cognizant of the fact with a snowpack, especially a faceted snowpack like this. Yeah, for sure. Part of this interview came about because I had some some listeners kind of write into the show and they wanted to hear about how to safely travel in places where there aren't forecast centers. So um, we've talked about some of the ways that we deal with that here as an operation. Um, do you have any parting advice for, for people who are – maybe traveling into far reaches of, of, of some random Alaskan range or, or somewhere going, going into expedition-style skiing, and they want to try and gain their confidence as they step into it, much like you've had to do when you pioneered heli-skiing in the, in the Ruby Mountains. To get by and ski tour around where there's not an avalanche forecasting center or you have to make the decisions on your own really comes with being able to keep your eyes open. If you can just see what's going on around you, that is your biggest asset in doing your own forecasting. doesn't matter where you are. You know, I mean, if you're in the Alaska range, if you're skiing around in the Great Basin, if you're skiing around in the Wasatch, doesn't matter. If you see tracks from something, find out what they are. If you see tracks from a skier, find out what they are. If you see tracks from a bird, find out what it is. You see snow deposition, you know, wow, there's an avalanche. I'm going to stay away from that. Oh, wow, there's an avalanche that has debris on it. Or there's an avalanche that, that had, there was snow on the debris, so it only happened couple of days ago, well, I, I still ought to be careful about what I'm doing. And then the other part about that, too, about traveling in the backcountry, again, comes down to group dynamics and making sure that you're with somebody that has the similar abilities that you have, similar goals, similar abilities, and has the ability to make conservative decisions. And I think if you keep your eyes open, travel with good people, you're on the way to making a good decision and getting to the point where you want to get. Don't be afraid to turn around. So Ruby 360 Lodge is an amazing facility, and, and the helicopter skiing is really the feature of what Ruby Mountain Heli Experience is. What are some of the other things that you guys do here? Caleb, we started a, a program because we have some, some ground, and we started a program where we have – a yurt, and a couple of weather ports. And the yurt is a 20-foot yurt, and it's a different model than the yurts where you see other places where you have bunk beds in them, and it's a, just a different model. We tried to deal with the yurts we tried dealing with yurts with, and running 10 to 12 people out, out of these yurts and weatherport. And a weatherport is like a fancy wall tent, you know, and you can put a couple of, you can put four cots in each one. So we had the ability to keep 12 people in at 10,000 feet with two guides. 
Well, what we found is the group dynamics of these 12 people, even if they knew each other, was not acceptable for us, for everybody to be, to have a pleasant time. So what we've done, Caleb, is we have reduced that to four skiers, one guide, luxurious accommodations in the guide, and it has changed the whole deal. So we sell it by mechanized skiing. So mechanized skiing means we're going to transport you in a snowcat, which means for four people, you could just pretty much put everything that you own in one of these cats, and we're going to take you to 10,000 feet. And at the end of your tour, we're going to bring all that stuff back out. What it's done is it's allowed us to guide four to one and not have a lot of the group dynamics issues that people have in other places. It's worked out really, really well. Just a, a little bit more about, about the yurt. So we have, there's two different yurts here in the Rubies. Uh, there's one at, located at 10,000 feet. So Ruby Thick 360 Lodge is located at 7,000 feet. The, the upper yurt is at 10,000 feet. And we access that upper yurt in the wintertime by either Snowcat or aircraft. Uh, the yurt is located right on uh, Conrad Creek Ridge and it's at elevation so touring starts really right from the door of the yurt. You can tour down off Conrad Creek and ski into Conrad and then ski up Thorpe or you can drop down into Talbot Creek. Uh, it's an incredible venue. You can um, you know you can see for <clears throat> hundreds of miles you can see the uh, Idaho border mountains on the Idaho border from the high yurt and it's uh you know it's a, a great venue for for alpine touring um we also do a lot of education out of the upper yurt so each each season we work with the amga offering you know a course for for the ski guide amga course we also this season we taught a, a airy pro 2 out of the high yurt and you know it's a really a, a great venue for, for the students and the instructors to be based in the mountains and at elevation. And uh, it's a, a very unique classroom for, for uh, educational purposes. Um, we also have a, a lower yurt, which is located right, right below Ruby 360 Lodge. It has vehicle access year round. Uh, it's a, a great base for people if they want to base out of the yurt and, and spend a few days touring in and around Lamoille Canyon doing day tours. Uh, the, the yurts are, are fully solar powered with solar, solar panels and, um, you know, solar electric and, and lights. They have super comfortable accommodations. Uh, they're both run heated by, uh, both the yurts are heated by propane. Uh, both have propane fireplaces and propane cooktops for cooking, and um, yeah, they're they're uh, you know <clears throat> they're great places to be, and um, you know they're uh, in very secluded areas. You won't see another another person that's not associated with with your group while you're at either of the two yurt locations. Yeah, especially the high year. It's an amazingly special place, and I think. I think probably my deepest day this season was was guiding out of the the high yurt there into Conrad Creek, um, which is also where where there's cat skiing operations going on. Um, I think it's pretty awesome that folks can come to the Ruby Mountains and not have to get not have to worry about getting stuck in the lodge for days on end. You know, we we have the option of going snow cat skiing if we can't fly, and and I I think some of people's best memories of coming here are not only in the helicopter, but in the snowcats and, and skiing the storm snow. So Caleb, I think that over the, over the period of, of operational days that we have, I would guess with the helicopter skiing and the snowcats, we're out 97% of the time. And it means so much for us. You come to the rubies to go skiing. We're going to take you skiing and we're going to do that to the best of our ability yeah absolutely so we're in a little bit of a transition era at ruby mountain heli right joe you you've been here for 42 years operating it and it's pretty awesome watching you work with with your son mike um who's a lead guide now and and i was hoping you guys could just talk about how that 
how that transition has gone and, and what you see in the future and, and maybe some of the changes that have happened around here in the last few years. Um, you know, Ruby 360 Lodge was built a few years ago and it's an amazing facility and I'm sure it's a, a dream come true for the Royer family. Um, maybe you guys could just talk a bit about that. Yeah, just a little bit about how this all evolved and how it's going and being an independent in this area. That means being an independent in this area, you're not really associated with any of the big ski corps. So everything you do, you need to kind of make good decisions about how to make your system better. If you have something that might be on the verge of a junk show, you need to fix it. You know, and you may need to make it better. And we're constantly working on that. Do we have a lot of junk shows? Not really. But whatever we can do to make our system better is what we're after. So I'm passing the torch. Francie and I are both passing the torch to Mike. And the way it kind of shook out was, you know, maybe five years ago, Mike and I are having dinner in Salt Lake at a sushi bar. I don't think Francie was there. And Mike said, hey, Dad, you know, you don't really tell me that much about the business. And I'm not very good at explaining things anyway. So from that point on, this whole business has changed. And it's changed for the good. And it's changed because there's a younger generation that's coming in here to be able to provide all these people with an unbelievable product. And Mike, from day one, he was born into the business, you know, and he gets it. And he understands that in order for this whole thing to continue, you have to make it better. The future of skiing in the Rubies Mountains is not with 60-year-old guides. The future is in youth. The future is in the, in the young guides and the young group of people that want to show this venue to all sorts of other guests. There's a changing of the guard, and it's a younger generation. If we didn't have the lodge and we were trying to work out of a hotel, probably wouldn't be here. It was, it was Mike's idea to build the lodge. And so... We probably would not have done that if it hadn't been for Mike showing the initiative to go, hey, build a lodge, I'll run it. And so that's kind of where it's going, you know, and, and uh, Mike's dedicated to it. Mike works 18 hours a day. I mean, he's, he comes in, he guides all day, he does his social media, he's got a great handle on the social media, and... Uh, you know, I he, I just uh, I wish him all the best. Mike, what are some of your aspirations for for Ruby Mountain Heli experience moving forward? Yeah, I think that uh, you know I, I've been extremely fortunate to to grow up in in a a ranching and mining community with uh, a couple parents that started a helicopter skiing operation and. Um, you know, every day here is, is an adventure and that's really what, you know, makes, makes this place special is you never know what tomorrow is going to bring. You need, there's so many different variables with, with the weather and the group and, uh, you know, the conditions and you, you never know what you're going to be doing tomorrow. And that's what, what keeps us on our toes and, and really keeps this, this place exciting. And, um, you know, we have, like I said earlier, we have a incredible staff here and uh, we all have each other's backs each and every day. And we're, you know, we're, we're surrounded by good people and, uh, you know, it's a pretty unique place to, to work. Yeah, it certainly is. I, I enjoy every day <laughs> that I'm here working for you guys. Well, uh, we'll raise a, a glass here to a, an excellent season this year and had a great time. Uh, working alongside you guys and learning from you and taking our guests skiing. Ken, have you done a hell of a job? We're proud of your podcast and, uh, you know, we hope that, that you continue doing what you're doing. And Mike, I uh, wish you all the best. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, should be awesome, man. I mean, uh, I can hardly wait for next year. Yeah, looking forward to, to next season already. Already, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Cheers, you guys. All Cheers. Right. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. RMH still has some seats open for this coming season, so book now at www.helicopterskiing.com to become part of the Ruby Dream in its 43rd year of operations. If you're listening to the podcast for the first time, go back and check out the past seasons. I think there are some, some episodes on there you'll really enjoy. Please rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to it on. It does really help when you do this, and and I appreciate the folks that have already done that. If you have feedback for the show, you can contact me through my website, www.theavalanchehour.com, and you can also see contributor, contributor bios there, as well as check out some of the new merchandise I have for sale to help fund this endeavor. Big thanks to Mike T for the artwork. You demand T. Music on this episode was Loungin' by Grammatic and Hicktronica featuring Dirtwire by the Polish Ambassador. These tracks were made possible through the per- permission of the artist or through the Creative Commons license and made available on freemusicarchive.com. Follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Follow Ruby Mountain Heli at Ruby Mountain Heli. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. There's no hype here. There's Nobody really cares what you wear, or nobody really cares. You could walk down into the Walmart in Elko in your ski boots and your goggles and your helmet on, and people are going to look at you just like they look at anybody else from Elko. You fit right in here. (laughs)